You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. We're continuing our series, This We Believe. And what I'd like to suggest for you guys online, go to the app. That's my picture because I took it off my phone this morning. And... uh, Go to the sermon notes there, or if you're on a web page, you can go to the bottom of the web page, and same thing, sermon notes are there, because I see the sermon notes as a teaching tool for you to do study after the sermon as well as take notes during the sermon. So, y'all in the room, back there, get them right now. If you haven't already, just get up and go get them, all right? You guys go get them wherever you are. Yeah, here we go. Why are we doing this series? We usually do Bible exposition. Why are we doing these uh, topical doctrinal sermons? Well, the big thing is we want to come back to what we believe and why. Because you see what happens when there's so much change going on, we tend to think, man, everything's changing. Well, it's not. The foundations of our faith never change. The truth is once delivered to the saints, they're forever. We want to anchor ourselves to that truth in all the garbage that's going on all the polarization, all the food fights in the frat house called Congress, we'll skip all that stuff because we want to deepen our unity. Now, to be fair, we've got every single political view represented at Grace Community Church. And we actually like drink coffee together. Ellie Vosser's getting ready to open our cafe again. Yes! We got a sample this morning. It's good. Okay. Uh, We want to remember identity because we're not here as a social service organization or just a cheap concert. We're here as a body of Jesus Christ. We want to remember that and keep it really clear. We want to find faith in the midst of fear. I don't know. I'm an old man. I remember the 60s with all the riots going on and assassinations. I don't ever remember a time of fear like this. We were taught as a, in grade school to get under our desk and, because of nuclear attack. There's never been fear like this in our society. We're going to find faith to live the life of hope and joy in the midst of all the junk going on. And, of course, this, we want to love and serve others. Democrats, that means you love and serve Republicans, right? Maskers, that means you love and serve non-maskers, right? No, that's too much, right? (laughs) That's what we're after. So the question today is, who is Jesus? It's one of the most fundamental questions of our faith because there's so many portraits of Jesus. Do you like this one? This is Eastern Orthodox. And I've seen many of these icons in my travels in that part of the world. And it's always the same sour look, golden face, Greek characters, of course, little finger symbols. That's not him being weird. If you look at those finger symbols closely, they form Iota Sigma, Sigma Chi, Chi Sigma, which is the outline for Jesus Christ. And it also means two natures of Jesus and the three fingers of the Trinity. It's a very meaningful symbol, and Eastern Orthodoxy is full of symbols. I don't find that one very attractive, frankly. How about this one? The most popular picture of Jesus ever in the Western world, Walter Solomon did it, 
And he was, a, he was an illustrator. He did Clark Gable and people like those. And so he said, well, you're a Christian. Why don't you make one of Jesus? So he did. And that's what he came up with. Do you like that one? How about this one? Passion of the Christ. This is Jesus lifting up Mary Magdalene, who's been dragged out in sin. Do you like that one? How about this one? Which one do you like better? Actually, if you're being historic, you don't like either one of them. Because the very Anglo Jesus on one side and the African Jesus on the other side, neither one of them are Middle Eastern or Semitic. They're, but they're, we, can, we can enculturate Jesus into our culture because he's a man for all races and colors, even white. Are you watching The Chosen? Please say yes. Yeah, please say yes. You've got to be watching The Chosen. You've got to be watching The Chosen. It's so good. Their Middle Eastern access is, accent is terrible. <laughs> but at least they're trying to say it. <laughs> but I, they're just doing such a good job of portraying things there. But popular mechanics. Of course popular mechanics would do it. Don't you know it? <laughs> the real face of Jesus right above video games beyond extreme and underneath <laughs> analyzing spy code smashers. <laughs> Oh, and you want to know, right? Say yes. Okay, here you go. Interesting. How many of you immediately attracted to that face? Well, see, this one's probably authentic. Typical Semitic features. Isaiah's a man of not, of not attractive at all. There was nothing about him that drew us to him. This is, may well be what Jesus looked like. Certainly closer to any of the other pictures. Maybe you wouldn't have quite that huh, expression on his face. But see what we all do is we, we created Jesus in our own imagination. And what I want to do is tie this close to the text as we look through this. So here's a text. The virgin will conceive. This is Matthew citing Isaiah 7.14. And they call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So that's where we begin. That's where we begin. What do I write in the blanks? God with us. See, that's the fundamental identity of Jesus, is he is God with us. Of all the different pieces, to me, that's the most important. We take the presence of God for granted, but we shouldn't. Because frankly, if I God, I would have pushed flush on this place a long time ago. I'm glad he doesn't. He, instead, he comes into the deepest, dirtiest stuff ever. I was teaching a class this week at Western Seminary where I'm a professor, and one of the students was talking about our God is this majestic God who never gets his hands dirty. I immediately contradicted him. I'm the professor. I can get away with that. <laughs> and said, no, the very first thing he does is get his hands dirty forming Adam. And in Jesus, he gets his hands really dirty because he is God with us, because he brings his cleanliness, his cleansing to this broken, marred world. And we believe that he's both God and man. Now, this comes from our doctrinal statement. I didn't put it up here because it's fairly long on Jesus. But you can check it out online. 
Let's look at what this looks like. This is John 1.1. I'm going to take you in a little bit of a deep dive on a couple of passages. One of them, it's very familiar. Beginning is the Word, the Word was God, the Word was God. But let's look at each word. The beginning. What begin? That's a time marker. In the beginning, temporal marker. What beginning are we talking about? Well, that's Genesis 1.1. The creation of all things. So the time marker is, at the time of the creation of all things, we find word, and that the Greek there is logos, and that's what I use when I talk about the one who would eventually be incarnate as Jesus, the logos. The little word was. What does it mean? No, I'm not being Clintonian on you. I'm serious. It means continuing existence before the time marker. So what's the time marker? All things created. Logos. Well, here's the way we would translate it if we got some meaning into it. The Logos is already in continuing existence at the time of creation. What does that mean? He's not a created being. Keep going. We got somewhere to know, but God? Well, that's the God. Which one is that? What is the creator God? And we look at uh, the Father, was, we know what that means, we already looked at that, existing before the time marker. So the word was existing before the time marker, with. And that particular Greek word, with, means in face-to-face relationship. There's a side-by-side, but face-to-face is a more intimate relationship word. And that's a word that's used here. So we'd say here the logos was in face-to-face relationship with God before anything else was created. And lastly, there's only one new word here, is God. And the thing of it is here, there's no article here. It's not the God, it's just God. Now, it could be one God of several, but a Jewish person would not say one God among several, especially not who are talking in face-to-face relationship. What it can mean is if I say, let's say that Megan goes on a date with, with Bill. And Megan comes back and all of her roommates want to know, what was Bill like? And she says, Bill is a dog. Bill is a dog. What does that say about Bill? There's no more dates to come. <laughs> it says he has the characteristics of dogness. It's a predicate nominative. This is a predicate nominative. What this is saying here is that the Logos has the very essential characteristics of God. So if we put all this together, we say that he's really part of the Trinity. Now that's just a quick look at a very, very uh, powerful passage. But it shows us that the Logos, the one who's going to be incarnated as Jesus, second person of the Trinity. But we keep going here, down at verse 14. There we find the word again. And what's that? Well, that's the Logos, the same we talked about in verse 1. Became, not was anymore. Became is a change word. Began to be. Began to be what? Flesh. Like Adam and Eve back in Genesis 2.24, they became one flesh. It means concretely human. So what John is saying in John 1.14 here is that the Logos, who was with God and was God, began to live as a concretely human man. And not just a man of any kind, but a man who dwelt among us. And we could dig into further than that. 
And he's here with the glory that comes from only the Father, full of grace and truth. That's who Jesus is. So he is the second person of the Trinity, become fully, concretely human. And as we follow through his life, which we won't do today, we just did that in Matthew, we find out that he's involved in every scuzzy thing ever. (sighs) Thankful for that, but man. You know why that makes you take a deep breath? Because he calls us to be like him. That means we got to go to scuzzy places to bring the hope and glory of God as well. Follow through a little bit more. Romans 9. We've shown you here from the gospel that the gospels say Jesus is God. This is Paul's letter to the Romans. Because the epistles say it. And frankly, if I'm talking to somebody who's a doubter, I don't go to the gospels first. I go to Romans. Because nobody questions the antiquity or the authenticity of Romans. And what does Romans say about the Christ? What does it say about him? He's God over all. Could you have a clearer statement of the deity of Christ? The answer is no, you couldn't. The epistles have quite a few of these. This is just one of them. So he said he's God. But there's another way we prove this, not just gospel statements and epistle statements. We also look at the things that either the Logos or Jesus did. I'll just show you one of them. This is Isaiah 44. Who created this world? According to Isaiah 44, 24. Who created? You guys pay attention out there. Quit, quit messing around. Come on, pay attention. Yeah, okay. Right? You're going to do it, right? So you should text in an answer right now. What, who did the creation? The Lord. Who helped him? Who alone spread the earth. So what is this saying? Is that Yahweh alone creates. Okay. Do you have any idea where I'm going now? Back to John 1. We keep reading. Verse 2 says the word was in the beginning with was God in the beginning, but then verse 3, through him, that is Logos, all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. What does that say? It says Logos creates. Now, do your logic. Yahweh alone creates. Logos creates. What does that say about the Logos? What's the necessary conclusion of that syllogism? Logos is Yahweh. See, and there are a number of things in Scripture. He judges, he forgives, he, he is God. So we're showing it through that the, either Logos or Jesus does things that only God does. We can do a lot more of these. That's the conclusion. So, do you like these verticals? Some are really helpful. It says about Jesus, what's the first thing you see about Jesus when you look at this? You see he's God. What is hard to see in this vertical? Remember, Jesus is what? Fully God and what? Fully man. And see what happens there is the man side of Jesus almost non-existent. And what I find in our theological tribe, if I can use that phrase, is we really emphasize the deity of Jesus and we largely overlook 
his humanity because we want it to be God and we forget that he's fully human. Because the other side of this, he has the same humanity as we have. For a true biblical Christianity, you have to say that. So one of the things we look at, and there's a lot of things we could do, Jesus had the same humanity as we do. He had human emotions. There are a lot of them we could put in here, but the most common emotion word about Jesus is compassion. If you remember Exodus 34, 6, and 7, we looked at two weeks ago when you talked about God, that's the first thing the Bible says about Yahweh as well. This is talking in this particular story in your notes, is talking about the, the widow of Nain. She's a widow, and her only son has died. And as Jesus is walking past this little city, he sees the funeral procession coming out. And he sees this widow with her only son dead, and he has compassion upon her. And he says, get up. And the boy rises. That's the character of our Jesus. He has compassion for the nobodies of this world. Grief. Remember John 11? Lazarus. Martha comes out and he gives her a profound theology lesson. Mary comes out and he starts bawling. Grief over the death of his friend Lazarus and the tragedy it was for Mary and Martha, his sisters. That's the character of a God. We find anguish. Jesus in the garden, crying out so strongly that the sweat is coming out of his pores like blood of an open wound. Or maybe it's blood coming out of his pores. I mean, it's anguish. Full human emotions. I want to show you one from Scripture. A centurion comes out. Now, this is a Nazi stormtrooper. But he's a man who's kind to the Jewish people he is over charge of. And he says, my son is dying. And Jesus says, oh, I'll stop by and, and, no, 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 the centurion says, I'm a man under authority. I understand how it is. Just say the word and he will rise. And Jesus' response is when he heard this, he was amazed at him. Turning to the crowd, I tell you, I've not found such great faith, even in Israel, the covenant people. See, Jesus is also amazed, astonished. You think, well, how can he be astonished? He knows everything. Well, does he? Does Jesus know everything? This is Matthew 24. We just went through it recently. The disciples, when is the time of your coming? And what does he say? About that day or hour, no one knows. Not the angels of heaven, not the sun. What does he say? I don't know the date I'm coming back. Does Jesus know everything? Simple answer is no, he doesn't. That's his own words. He asks simple questions of information. I think he asks those because he doesn't know. We have this idea, oh, he's so God, of course he knows everything. Actually, he doesn't by his own words. There are things Jesus does not know. There are things that Jesus does not know. Now, the second person of the Trinity, yes, he is omniscient. But see, Jesus is no longer just the second person of the Trinity. He's a logos who has become flesh, concretely human, and living among us. So look at this. This is Hebrews 2. 
Again, all these references are in your notes. You guys did get the notes, right? You did by now you've got them? Okay, just checking. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. That's talking about us. So by his death, he might break the power who holds the power of death is the devil and free those who all their lives were held slavery by their fear to death. It continues. For this reason, he, Jesus, second person of Trinity, Logos, had to be made like them, fully human in every respect. Fully human in every respect, the preacher says. In order that he might be a merciful, faithful high priest in service God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he is tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The preacher goes on in chapter 4 and adds some more thought to this. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence because of our great high priest that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So when I summarize the reality of Jesus, I find he's made like us, not just like pre-fall Adam and Eve, like us, you, me, y'all, in every respect, so he could make atonement. We'll talk about that in just a minute. For the sins of the people and what goes in that blank? What goes in that blank? Are you paying attention? I started yelling at you, not to them. Help. See, that's his thing. He is the advocate. He's the walk alongside. He is the helper. The Holy Spirit does that with us today as well. We don't walk alone. We don't walk alone. I was just in the hospital, as many as you know, Thursday getting a biopsy on the cancers in my lungs. And one of the rules at the hospital is you never walk alone. Now, by that, that didn't mean Jesus walking with me and you had to call a nurse to go to the bathroom. And once they untethered me from the suction on the thing because I had a lung collapse a bit when they did the biopsy thing. But I snuck away and walked on my own anyway. Because <laughs> Jesus was with me. <laughs> we never are in this life alone. You're part of Jesus' team. Not just Jesus, but the people of God coming together in community, which is a spiritual practice that we celebrate right now. Hebrews 4 again. Adopt the same attitude as... This should be Philippians 2. Sorry, wrong reference. Adopt the same attitude that of Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality to God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of humanity. What's the key verb in this complicated statement? What's the key verb in this complicated statement? It's right there. Emptied himself. What did the Logos empty himself of? The one who is in the form of... Well, he starts in the form of God, and after he empties himself, he is in the form of a servant. He goes from equality with God to the likeness of humanity. What does that mean? Form of God, many people read that and say, well, that's the very essence of deity. Remember, he is with God and is like God, is God. Okay, that's certainly a possible meaning. That would also mean, then, that the form of servant is the very essence of servanthood. Now, question. Is there any essence of servanthood? 
Is it true that some humans are fit only to be servants and slaves, biblically? Now, culturally, absolutely. The Greek culture is very clear. The Roman culture, very clear. Our culture today, very clear. Some people are only fit to be slaves. But see, biblically, that's absolutely, completely wrong. All humans are image of God. No one is by essence a slave. So what is slave or servant? Well, that's a role or lifestyle that a person adopts, form of servant. So what then does form of God mean? It means that he began in the role or lifestyle of God. Now, question, how many people live the role or lifestyle of God? How many? How many persons live in the role or lifestyle of God? Three. Yep. Who are they? (laughs) Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Yeah. Does Michael and Gabriel, the archangels, answer is no. They live in the heavenlies, but not in the world. So this is saying that he began as fully divine, but it's emphasizing his role or lifestyle. And what he does, he empties himself. Now, my way of putting this together and not everybody would agree with this particular statement, he gives up the use of, his, of some uniquely divine attributes, omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence, immortality, such. He gives up the use of those attributes for the sake of his incarnation to live as a perfectly spirit-filled human on mission of Messiah. I think that's what he does. I think he he doesn't stop being omniscient, but he gives up the use of that attribute. In effect, he puts it in his pocket and says, I'm not going to use it. And the way I characterize it, it's like getting a room key in a hotel. You get a room key. The general manager has a room key that will get her into everything. We get a room key that gets us into just a few doors, our room door, maybe the exercise room door, maybe the back room of the hotel or something. He gives up his God card, puts in his pocket, and picks up a perfectly spirit-filled human card, and that's way he lives. His mission is Messiah. Our mission is not Messiah. But see, what this means is we really can be like him. When it says he takes up humanity in every respect, I think that's what he does. And then what that means for us is because we also have the Holy Spirit, we have all things available to our mission Can you get supernatural information like Jesus did? Yeah, same way he did, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you have the power to do miracles? The answer is yes, if it's our mission, if God grants, just like Jesus did, by the same power he did. We can really be like Jesus because like us in every respect. The atoning work, we're going to just fly through this, but a couple things I want to do. He reveals the character of the Father to us. John 1.18. Example. His life shows us how we should be and live. Philippians 2.4. Isaiah 53. Incredibly gripping passage. He was pierced for our transgressions. Remember, this is written almost 800 years before Jesus. 
crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, our punishment on him. By his wounds were healed. Like each sheep had gone astray, each of us turned our own way. The Lord, the Father, has laid on him, the Son, the iniquity of us all. You find that same thing repeated in several places in the New Testament. What this is saying is the doctrine of substitution. He took the penalty of my sins in my place. And what that means is that Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. Now, relational damage, yes, but no condemnation. We never get kicked out of the kingdom, ever. We never get told to pack our things and get out because he's our substitute. All we have to do is accept this, but we have to accept it. He won't force it on us. Hebrews 2 again. Children of flesh and blood, he shared in their humanity by death. He might break the power of him who was the power of death that is the devil. A lot of passages beginning in Genesis 3.15 on shows that in his triumph, he's won the decisive victory over the devil. Now the war goes on, but the decisive victory has been won. There is no doubt about the outcome, but the war is still real. Redemption, it brings captives out of slavery into freedom. We've got people sitting right here who have been incredibly captive, and God has rescued them from that captivity. Expiation, fancy term we don't use except in theology. It means he cleanses from our sins. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29, Jesus, or John the Baptist says. One more from Isaiah 53. This one's hard. This one's hard. Yet the Lord's will is what? The Lord's will is what? To crush him. To cause him to suffer. Is that divine child abuse? No. No. Because the one who is being crushed is a second person in the Trinity. Fully willing, fully involved participant. But it's awful. Think of what the father feels as he crushes his son. Think what their father feels. I'm the father of two bio sons and several non-legal sons. When I think of Don, my older son that I'll talk to after services today, the thought of me crushing him, I'd never do it. Send me to hell instead, God. I'm not that good. The father most compassionate being in the entire universe crushes his son. Why? Sin offering. A sin offering. So when I look at this, father and son partnered together, both agonizing. We know about the agony of the son. We see it in the garden, but the agony of the father, we can't miss that. To perform the substitutionary sacrifice. A bit further, for John 4.10. The love of God is made manifest. He sent his only son to the world so he might live through him. This is love. Not that we've loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, it's, again, a word we don't use except in theology, but it means to appease wrath. It means that an act that satisfies wrath. So it satisfies wrath. The question, wrath of whom? 
Well, again, we have the answer in Revelation chapter 6. The kings of the earth called the mountains rocks, fall on us as hide us from the face him who sits on the throne. And who is that? Well, that's the Father. Revelation 4. And upon the wrath of the Lamb. Romans 5. That's the Logos, the Son. For the day of their wrath. Who's that? Father and Son. By the way, if you go later this afternoon or the rest of the week, you can find this PowerPoint. And then the sermon thing, just go to the thing and click on sermon notes and you'll find all of this. What does that say? Father and Son partner together, both agonizing, to perform the substitution sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of the Father and the Son. You can't miss the agony of the Father. You can't miss the wrath of the Son. Well, what about the Holy Spirit? I don't know. The Bible doesn't mention him in this context. It does say he'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so that means that for some of you, he's speaking to you right now. I need to join Team Jesus. We can help. It's a great place to be. A great place to be. Because you work with a God who's this good. He ascended to heaven and see the right hand of the Father Almighty. We've already seen some of his work as a great high priest. What a Dig in one more thing, John 3. We all know John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What a great passage. Worship team, come on up here. We want to sing about this, God. You know that one. <coughs> Do you know John three thirty six? Because that chapter ends with this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's John three sixteen. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on him. God's wrath remains on the one who says, I don't want to be a part of Team Jesus. Matthew 25, that we looked at just recently. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. What are sheep? Those are people who join Team Jesus and live that way. What are the goats? Those who reject Team Jesus and live for their own pleasure. And at the end of that chapter, he says this. Then they'll go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous to eternal life. See, in the question that comes, we started with who is Jesus. And we've taken some time here to try to unpack that. But see, the real question is, Who's Jesus to you? See, and that's the question I want, to, I want us to think about. Because what you believe about Jesus isn't so important as have you joined his team? Who is Jesus to you? Who he is is already there. But a lot of times we don't understand it. We think he's just another one of the great wise men of old. We think maybe he's a subversive sage undercutting a religious establishment. We think he's maybe a historical character. Maybe you think he's just, you know, a church guy that we use to manipulate people. Lots of different pictures of Jesus. But the picture of Jesus, he's God come among us to live with us, show us how to live, to take our sin and shame and brokenness to himself so we can have his forgiveness, his honor, his power. 
who is Jesus to you? We're going to sing one of my super favorite songs. This is your God. It's, it's a song that focuses on Philippians chapter 2, who is Jesus. This is our God. And as we sing this together, I want you to be pondering, who is Jesus to you? You know, Team Jesus is a great team to be on. As some of you know, I've been doing lung biopsies for the cancers in my lungs. I've got three cancer hotspots in my body right now. Bladder cancer comes out tomorrow, biopsies, and we'll find out what's going on. Actually, the prognosis is good considering how much cancer I've got. Yeah, really. <laughs> Bladder cancer probably goes away pretty quickly because early in lung cancer, if it's melanoma and a certain type, there's immunotherapy to actually treat it now. And the word of the Lord has been to me, this is not the end. Keep on with what you're doing. And I'm following that. So I thank you for your prayers. Many of you reached out. And I appreciate it. There's a lot of people that need prayers. A lot of people. Jay and Jamie are in Maui right now getting some much, much needed rest. We're going to pray for them. A lot of people. A lot of people. But see what happens? You're on Team Jesus. Even in the hospital with a partially collapsed lung, as I was on Thursday afternoon and Friday, you bring hope and life into that place. Everybody that came to my bed, I couldn't go anywhere because I was tethered by a suction tube. I told you earlier, I got rid of it. Everybody came to my room. I wanted to bring hope and life as they're doing their work because my roommate was a hard case, hard case. When it came to me, I wanted to bring life and hope to them. That's my mission, is to bring the hope and the life of Jesus everywhere. Because he's given me so much hope and so much life. And that's what I want to call you to do. If you're not on Team Jesus yet, we would love to talk to you. We really want you to be a part of that because it's an awesome place to be. Oh, yeah, you go in the worst places ever. But you go with the very hope of Jesus. And these are some of our people who are dying of cancer. Or, well, I won't tell you stories. There's hope. There's life. There's joy. And man, does our world not know those things. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for being willing to crush your son. Can't even imagine that. I think how the passion of Christ portrayed your teardrop falling to the earth. What a many teardrops because of your agony. Jesus, you're Agony, not just in going to the cross, but living in a life where there's so much death, so much disaster, so much betrayal, and being subject to all of those things. Yet you did it for the joy set before you, so you could bring joy and hope and forgiveness and honor and belonging to the people. Holy Spirit, work among us. As Matt preaches that sermon next week, the power of the Holy Spirit, we want to be recipients of your conviction, of your empowerment, of your unity, of your hope. Teach us, Holy Spirit. And again, I pray for those who are here who are not yet on Team Jesus. Let's make the decision. Lord, we want to be with you now and forever. We pray this hope in Jesus' name. Amen. Go change the world. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. 
For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.